Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. It is good to see you guys out here tonight, getting warmer, and uh, if you're from Bakersfield, it's just going to keep getting warmer. You know that already. We'll pray, and then we will we'll read through Romans or through Hebrews eventually, so just hang on there. We've got everything up. Everyone's ready to go. Welcome to, uh, to RBC, those of you who are visiting, those of you who are family, good to have you here. Um, those of you who are visiting, good to have you here, welcome. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me, move me out of the way this evening, Lord. God, you know the, the time, the effort, the hours that I've listened, read, studied over these past five weeks and longer. And Lord, as it comes to a conclusion tonight, I pray that we would all see with clarity, with eyes wide open, the truth of the gospel and also the heresy found within the Roman Catholic Church. And Lord, I pray that they have seen you They've seen you lifted up as the gospel has been preached and they've seen the heretical teaching of Rome pushing you down, pulling you off of the throne as these teachings have gone forward. And I pray that tonight as we conclude, Lord, this would not be the end of our learning, but it would be the beginning of our evangelism to those that we love those who are a part of our family, those who are our friends. And you would give us a great passion, Lord, to reach them. That we have been equipped over these past few weeks, this month actually, not just to be informed, but to be equipped, Lord, to do the work of evangelism in your name. So have your way tonight as we go through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is our, our final week, and I really appreciate those of you who have been so consistent in the past five weeks. I appreciate the, the respect of the, the junior high and the high school, the youth. Um, you have been troopers through all of this, and I hope that you've learned some stuff along the way. So far, we have learned that Rome is her ultimate authority. The ultimate authority that Rome has is itself or herself. Rome relies on herself for the interpretation of Scripture. Rome relies on herself for the inventions of their traditions. We've also learned that Rome preaches a different gospel, that there is no gospel in Rome. Rather, it is one that calls people to attempt to earn God's favor so that they can make themselves savable by God, savable by God, potentially savable. Hence, it is not the work of Christ that completes salvation, but it is the work of the sinner that completes salvation. We've also learned that Rome, from a position of greed and power, they've created the seat, the heretical seat of the Pope. 
the Pope who is believed to be taught to be the vicar of Christ on earth. The one who has taken the very seat of power, prestige, honor, and leadership that Christ possesses. And they have robbed Christ of that leadership by claiming themselves to be the substitute of Christ or the vicar of Christ on earth. And then we also learned last week, I'm sure it was interesting for all of us, that there is no place for purgatory in Scripture. There is no place for penances and indulgences. They have no place in Scripture. And that Rome has given these attributes from Christ or for Christ. They have given them to Mary and taken away worship from Christ. All that we've spoken about, all that Rome has dogmatically taught, has its roots and its source in no other place but in the blasphemous seat. Of Satan, for Satan can, for only Satan could come up with such blasphemous teachings. Tonight, as we conclude our final protest of Rome, we will talk about the Roman Catholic Mass. For those of you who don't know what that is, you may know that as our sister Lupi does, as the host, we're going to talk about that today. I promise you that I will not give you as many quotes as I did last week. I think I kind of overdid it. This week, we're going to give you just a few, and then we're going to conclude with the overall explanation of what those means, or what those mean. First of all, this is a quote from John O'Brien, who is a Roman Catholic apologist in his book, The Faith of Millions. This is what happens at the host or during the Eucharistic sacrifice. This is what Rome teaches happens. Listen carefully. All right. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, consecration, we'll talk about in a moment, will be the prayer that they say before they issue the host. That would be the the prayer of Jesus, which says, take this, my body, and eat. He reaches up, the priest, he reaches up into the heavens, and he does what? He brings Christ down from his throne. And places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a great, it is a power greater than that of the saints and angels. Greater than that of seraphim seraphim and cherubim. They take Christ off of his throne and place him on the altar. This is what Rome teaches is going on during the Roman Catholic Mass. Indeed, this power to bring Christ down is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, listen, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man Not once, but a thousand times. This is a repetitive action, a repetitive act. Not one time, thousands of times. The priest speaks, and what does Christ do? And lo, Christ, the eternal, omnipotent God, when the priest speaks, he bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Imagine. 
Christ. The priest speaks and Christ says, yes, sir. And bows his head in obedience, humble obedience. Of what sublime dignity. Now he's going to talk about the priest and this great, uh, uh, this great privilege that he has. Oh, of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vicergent or a person exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign ruler of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent, the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement with which Christ offered on Calvary. He's saying when Christ is brought down, the same act on Calvary is happening again. Literally. No wonder the name which spiritual writer are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of altar Christos. For the priest is and should be another Christ. Every priest from Father Craig to all of them in Bakersfield and all around the world, when they are ordained as ministers, they are called before all of the council and altar Christos, another Christ. And they embrace that title. If you're a Protestant, these words that I just read to you from a Roman Catholic apologist, they don't not they do not only reflect what Rome teaches, but they should also pour out of you an appallment. A, 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 you should be disturbed by what you just heard. If you are a saved Christian. Is this really what Rome teaches, though? Absolutely. This is not just an apologist. Let me go and give you what the Council of Trent what Rome says is infallible teaching from their own council of infallible teachers. Let's see what they said at their Council of Trent in 1551. This is the 13th session in October of 1551. They prepared a decree concerning the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. At the end of the decree, they compiled a list of canons or standards and anathemas or curses upon those who rejected these standards. So if you reject the six things that I'm about to tell you, and there are more, but we're just going to bring up six, then there is a curse, according to Rome, on you. Number one, if anyone says that in the mass, a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God. Or that to be offered is nothing else than that Christ given to us to eat. Let him be anathema, which means we'll go back over this. If you believe that it is not actually Christ being offered on the altar again, you are cursed. Literally, it has to be Christ. I went and spoke at a a Catholic youth group uh, for my aunt one time. And one of the young people asked me, why don't Christians believe that Jesus actually becomes or the, the, the host actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus when we take it? I had never heard that before. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And I said, do you mean literally? Yes, literally. And I said, well, I would answer the question back to you. Why do you believe 
that it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. They had no answer because Rome teaches this. And that's what you must believe. You can't question it. You only have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, anathema be on you. Number two, this is from their own canons, from their own words. If anyone says that by those words that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not institute the apostles, priests, or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood, let them be anathema. What they're saying is this. If you say that Christ is not saying, I give permission for every single apostle and priest after me to actually take my body and make it actual body and actual blood, then you're cursed because I've given them that authority. Number three, if anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is only is one only of praise and thanksgiving, which is what you and I do, or that it's mere commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory one, propitiatory one, or that it profits him only who receives and ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, punishments, satisfactions and other necessities. Let him be cursed. Meaning this, if you practice the Eucharist or communion like we do as remembering what Christ had done, as worshiping Christ for his act, and you do not see this as a literal work of Christ happening where he forgives your sin, when you take the host, you are cursed. That is crazy. I don't know why none of you are not falling on the ground tripping because your family is doing this every Sunday. There are some people who are doing this every day. Not only are they doing this for themselves, but they're taking the mass for dead people, for their own sins, for those who may be in purgatory to satisfy the punishments that they would endure in purgatory. What kind of twisted person would come up with these things? Number four, if anyone says that by the sacrifice of the mass, a blasphemy is cast upon the most holy sacrifice of Christ consummated on the cross or that the former derogates the latter. Let him be anathema. Number five, let me get through these real quick. If anyone says that it is a deception to celebrate masses in honor of the saints. In order to obtain their intercession with God, the church intends, let him be anathema. If anybody says that through this, you can't pray to saints, you're cursed. And finally, if anyone says that the canon of the mass contains errors, <laughs> this is crazy. Therefore, to be abrogated, let him be anathema, which basically says, if you think I'm wrong, you're cursed. That's what he just that's what they're just saying right now. Together, the council says, and let's make another rule that if anybody, if anybody says we're wrong, they're cursed, too. You cannot question the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because the Catholic Church has deemed itself infallible. It is perfect and it cannot do wrong. I said this last week. The Protestant Church, we don't believe we are perfect. We know we are imperfect, but we know his word is perfect. And that's what we rely on. 
So to sum this up, and I've written these down up here for you. Got him. Jesus Christ, this is what they're saying, is truly, really, and substantially present in the sacrament of the Eucharistic following the consecration. So when the priest prays, Jesus shows up. Why do you think that moment is so big every time there's a mass? You ever thought about like what what was actually going on when you were in there? This is what's going on. The priest, I don't know if he's told you this, but some people know, he believes Jesus is right there in that wafer and in that cup. And in your partaking of that, he just forgave your sins. Transubstantiation. This involves the change of the whole substance. This is the transubstantiation is when those substances change into the bread, the bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. This is called transubstantiation. This transformation that happens, transformation of the substances. Number three, since Christ is said to be really present in the Eucharist, the elements themselves following the consecration, they are worthy of worship. Do you see them lift up the thing? Who do, what do they do? They go with the host and they go with the, the, the cup of, of whatever. I don't know what those priests are drinking, but they bring it before. Don't they? And then they bow and then they kiss. Do you ever wonder why? Because they think that's actually Jesus. But they had the power to bring him down. They are taking an Old Testament, and we're going to get to this, they're taking an Old Testament act of a priest offering up a sacrifice, and the sacrifice happens to be Jesus. And they happen to be the priest of the Old Testament performing that sacrifice on your behalf. Number four, the sacrifice of the mass is properly called propitiatory in that it brings about pardon of your sins. It's a propitiatory sacrifice because it forgives your sins. Number five, in the institution of the mass as the Lord's Supper, Christ offered his own body and blood to the father in the signs of the bread and the wine. And in so doing, this is what they're saying. He ordained the apostles to continue to do the same in the New Testament and on and on and on until this day. Number six, the sacrifice of the mass is properly offered, properly offered sins, punishment, satisfaction and and other necessities, not only for the living, but also for the dead. And then last, anyone who disagrees with these things is cursed. Each of these are directly from the Council of Trent, and they are still held by the Roman Catholic Church today. They have not been changed, and they will never be changed. If anything is changed from Trent, the Council of Trent, all of all of Rome's teachings go out the window. Because now they are saying we are not perfect. There's two things that we're going to focus on tonight, and then we'll be done. That is transubstantiation. This means when the wafer and the wine are changed by the power of God into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and the propitiatory sacrifice. Rome teaches that when Christ is offered upon the altar by the priest, 
This is truly a propitiatory sacrifice, the same sacrifice that happened on the cross. This act, this act of the Eucharistic sacrifice or this act of the propitiatory sacrifice is central. It is the central act of worship and the central act of the gospel in Rome. The Eucharistic sacrifice of the mass. This is their moment of worship. This is the most holy moment in every single service. This is their most out there moment where they can worship God. And I use the term Eucharistic sacrifice of the mass because it is very accurate according to Orthodox Roman Catholic terminology. This is the focus of everything else within Rome. This is the focus. Rome says that it is a propitiatory sacrifice because of the so-called miracle of transubstantiation through the authority of the priest to bring down Christ at the words of consecration. When Jesus says, take this, eat of it, all of you. This is my body, which was given up for you, so on and so forth. When the priest said this, says this. There is a transformation that happens when Jesus is literally present, body, soul, blood and divinity upon the altar of the Roman Catholic Church. And this sacrifice is said to be an unbloody sacrifice. Listen, it is a representation of the one sacrifice of the mass. And as a result, there is a propitiatory, there is propitiatory action. This sacrifice produces forgiveness when you partake of the host. They're repetitive in nature. Raise your hand if you were a Catholic before you, before this, before you came here. Anybody raised Catholic? Raise your hand if you took the host or the sacrifice more than 10 times. Raise your hand if you took it more than 100 times. Raise your hand if you probably took it a thousand times. You can take, whoa, some of y'all are really guilty. You can take the mass 10, 20,000 times in your life. And Rome believes that every single time that you do this, you are once again approaching the cross that Jesus Christ was on. And so you will go back time and time and time again. So that your sins can be forgiven time and time and time again. But what does this returning over and over and over again demonstrate? It demonstrates that the sacrifice attended week after week and month after month and year after year has never perfected you. That it's never forgiven you. That it's only for a moment and then you lose it. And you must go back because if you don't go back, you might die. And if you die without doing this, then you will go to purgatory. And you will suffer for who knows how long. So there's a limitation to this sacrifice. There's a limitation to this hope or to this host and its propitiatory effect. The effect is only momentary. The effect is not eternal. It's just for the moment. Rome teaches That you can go to mass over and over and over again, but then commit a mortal sin and then lose the grace of justification. And in doing so, you become an enemy of God all over again. And even if you don't commit a mortal sin, 
You could commit a venial sin, and when you die, you will still go to purgatory and undergo satisfacio. What we talked about last week, suffering for your own sins, because that's the only way you can go to heaven before you have to be perfect before you can go to heaven. You must be purged of your sins. And our argument is this. That is not the effect of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The effect of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not a one act that you must keep going back to and do, going back to and doing again and again and again. Romans or Hebrews chapter 10. Let's, let's read real quick. <coughs> For the law. And if you're interested in what we're talking about, read Romans or Hebrews. Start at chapter one. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which which they offer, what? Continually, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. He's saying this of the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, they were offered year after year after year, and they could never and will never make you perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. If the sacrifice that is offered was to forgive you forever, then they wouldn't keep going back and doing it again. Once it's offered, it's done. If it wasn't done, if it was done, then there was no need for you to come back. But since it's not done, you still have on your conscience the act of sin. So you must go back so that you can be forgiven. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of what sins. There's a reminder of your sins in that Old Testament, in that old covenant. There's a reminder of your sins. You are never going to get away from your sins because you must continue to offer the sacrifice. There has not been offered a perfect sacrifice. You need a perfect one. And if you keep offering and you keep offering then you're saying whatever sacrifice has been offered is not good enough. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was bulls. It was goats. They can't take away your sin. It's an animal. It's just temporary. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings And sacrifices for sins you have no desire, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. And he said, behold, I've come to do your will. And what does he do? He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the old act of sacrifices and he establishes the new act of sacrifices. And he says this. 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Jesus came and took away the old and replaced it with the new. The old was year after year, month after month or whatever. He comes and replaces the old and offers up himself as a sacrifice, not year after year, once for all. Done. Every priest stands Daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. All you priest. But he having offered offered one sacrifice for sins for all time did what sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies were made his footstool for his feet. By the one offering he has perfected. What did he do? He perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also also testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. That in those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and on their minds and I will write them, he says, on their whatever. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now there is now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Wow. He takes away the old. He replaces it with the new. He is the perfect sacrifice once and for all. There is no more, no longer a need to present any more sacrifices. It is done. Can you imagine if you got on a loudspeaker and preached this to all Roman Catholics throughout all the world, it's done. Can you imagine the freedom? And he's taking you back to the Old Testament under the old covenant. You had to keep coming back year after year. The high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of those bulls and those goats upon the altar. Can you imagine? Just think about this. If you can imagine just for a moment what that altar must have looked like year after year, that same altar. Can you imagine the dry, crusted blood that the, at the priest stands before as he goes and sprinkles the blood from the new year and says, there's the blood from the last year and there's the blood from the previous year and there's the blood from the previous year. And what is it doing? It is pointing to something greater. It is pointing to the, the, the truth that this will not last forever. It can't last forever. This cannot be it. The sprinkling of the blood every year. Over and over and over again. According to Hebrews chapter 10, the repetitive nature of the sacrifice, it points to the imperfection of that sacrifice. If you've got to keep doing it, it means it's not perfect. The term used in Hebrews chapter 10 for repetitive sacrifice is a wonderful word. I've been saying it all day. Anamnesis or remembrance. Reminder of our sins. Reminder of sins and a repetitive sacrifice. Because if you repeat the sin, if you repeat the sacrifice of that sin, then that sin has not been dealt with. 
And that is why those repetitive sacrifices were pointed to something greater, something more perfect, not something, someone greater, someone more perfect. That term anamnesis is used one other time in all of the New Testament. And it's when Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper and he says to them, do this as an anamnesis of me. This is beautiful. He says, do this as a remembrance of not your sins, but a remembrance of what I am doing, the sin bearer on your behalf. I'm going to take your sins and put them upon my shoulders and bear the wrath of God. So when you partake of this communion, remember what I did. Don't remember your sins. Jesus says, or God says, I've cast them as far as the east is from the west. I don't remember your sins, but you remember what I did for your sins. As an anamnesis for your sins. The sin bearer, not the sin. And one of our problems is we still have a Roman Catholic mentality. We come into this church and we still think God is looking at our sins. Instead, he's looking at Christ and what Christ has done for our sins. Don't walk in here thinking God is going to strike you dead. It was accomplished here on the cross. And there is no need for you to fear or worry or even think you need to reach a level of perfection before you can be loved by God. Let me say to you, beloved, it will never happen. Instead, you are dearly loved even when you are not lovable. The Lord's Supper has been turned into a repetitive sacrifice in Rome. The work of Christ has been turned into a repetitive act. Week, not year after year, week after week. And for some people who go to mass every single day, every day, saying the work of Christ was not good enough. And I must go because my sins are still there and they will never be forgotten when the reality is this act or this communion is, is supposed to remind us of a finished sacrifice, a completed sacrifice, not one that must be done over and over and over again. It is one time and it perfects. I love what Hebrew says. It perfects. It perfected. It may, once you accepted the sacrifice of Christ, you have been perfected by Christ. And now you are on the road to being sanctified for Christ. But you now belong. It is finished. The sacrifice is finished. It's done. And it has been done for those for whom it was made. There is no finished sacrifice in Rome. And without a finished sacrifice, all the other things that we've talked about, this is why this lesson is last. All the other protests that we have had. And presented on scripture, on justification, on the Pope, on Mary, purgatory, etc., etc. They all pale in significance to the finished work of Christ. The finished sacrifice of Christ. Rome has no finished sacrifice. Therefore, Rome has no peace. You cannot have peace if there's not a finished sacrifice. Instead, you are waiting 
for that sacrifice to be finished so that you can have peace. And if you keep going back year or week after week, you cannot have no peace with God. To have true shalom with God is to have a wellness of relationship with God, a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Rome teaches that you can commit a mortal sin at any time. And at that moment, you are now at war with God all over again. You cannot have any peace with God if at any time you could be at war with God. You and I fail. You and I fall. But because we are in this fleshly suit and we are human beings, but our failures do not take away from our peace with God. Once you have been justified, you have been justified. Once a sacrifice is done, it is done, and you have peace with God. Rome has no shalom. Rome has no peace. And listen, the Roman Catholic Church, can you turn the air on, please? Not the Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church has stolen the one thing from the Catholics That can give them peace with God. And that is the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They have stolen that from them. Can you imagine every Sunday being brainwashed into thinking you have no peace with God because of your sin. And his sacrifice must be offered all over again so that you can have peace with God. Can you imagine the fear that you would live under? The fear that you did live under. This is why I said from the very beginning, this doctrine can only be devised by someone who wants to take away the true shalom that God offers to you in Christ. And that someone is Satan. Satan wants nothing more than to take away your peace with God, your right standing with God. And he will devise a whole religion. That is nothing but a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. We are talking about the gospel. The gospel that gives you peace. Not temporary peace, eternal peace. Because it is based upon the finished work of the only one true Savior. And in conclusion, am I saying these things to, to create division? I'm not saying anything to create division. Division is already there. Division has been there. I'm not the person who is now the proponent of division. Division has always been there. I'm just telling you what is what has always been. This has been debates that have been going on since ever since. And we can try as much as we want to hold hands together and fight against social injustices. But we cannot ignore the reality that Rome teaches a different gospel and a different way to peace with God which is no peace with God. We must be diligent in evangelizing Roman Catholics. We must be diligent. Imagine someone right now is sitting where you were sitting however long ago you were there. And they are sitting in absolute ignorance and confusion going through the religious acts of a church that they've always known to be, this is all I know. Because if I go to a Protestant church, they're going to be running around the building, screaming and yelling, spitting, laying hands on each other, 
playing rock and roll music. Isn't that what you thought? That we were a bunch of holy rollers? Now look at you. You're one of us. I would love to not talk about these things. I would love for these to never even be an issue. But they have to be an issue. Because the book that we are teaching on Sundays is still in the Bible. The book of Galatians. If Paul was being hard on the Judaizers for adding one thing to the gospel. Listen, and there was no indication that the Judaizers rejected the resurrection, that they rejected. John was telling me this, that they rejected the name of Jesus. They believed in the deity of Christ. There was no indication that they were unorthodox in any other way except for this one thing that they were adding to the gospel. And if Paul was hard on them for that one thing, saying, yes, faith in Christ is necessary, but you must add this one more thing. Paul says they are cursed because of that. That one thing. And because of that one thing, Christ is of no no benefit to you. It is either all Christ or all you. It is either all grace or all you. It is either all the work of Christ or all your work. Now, apply that to Rome. Imagine the dozens of things they have added to the gospel. The dozens of things that they've added to the gospel. The people of Galatia, and listen, even the Judaizers would be shocked at what Rome has added to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is no gospel at all. Imagine the punishment that is coming because of that. And imagine the responsibility that is on your and my heads for being related or close to Roman Catholics and saying nothing about it. I hope that the silence that I hear right now, that I hear, is causing you to say, man, I've got cousins that are Catholics. I've got aunts and uncles that are Catholics. I wonder if I could sit down and just have a talk with them or even give them a CD. This is my challenge to you. A friend of mine was talking today about her, a friend of hers, husband, who's getting involved deeply in Roman Catholicism. And my question to her was, does this person know anything about Catholicism? I don't know. This is our challenge now. It's our responsibility to share that with them. And they were doing that. This is our responsibility to do that, to share with them these truths so that they can be completely aware of everything that you're aware of. Imagine seeing a bunch of homeless people with no food and you know where to find bread. Would you say something? Let's pray. Father, be